0: turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. If you're visiting, just to let you know what we've been doing, we began uh, preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and we spent quite a while in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we took a pause over the summer into the beginning of the fall here, and we went through the book of Ezra. And there were some sporadic times where uh, Greg and Scott, thankfully, were able to cover and preach through Matthew, chapter 8. And so we've covered Matthew 8, and we've arrived at Matthew, chapter 9 today. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage and we'll pray and then we will discuss what is to be seen here. It's a wonderful text, familiar story for many of us and this is Matthew chapter 9 verses 1 through 8. Matthew chapter 9 verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men." Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I I know for many of us this is a familiar story. I pray, God, that You would show us uh, real riches that exist in this text, that You would reveal to us more of the glory of Jesus, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that the eyes would be opened that we would behold the glory of the Lord, and that we would be transformed into His glory from one degree of glory to the next. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So be at work now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, because we haven't been in Matthew consistently for a while, I wanted to give an extended introduction and just step back to a wider angle of view to try to remind us where we've been and where we are going in the book of uh, in the book of Matthew. If you see here in the first verse of Matthew 9, it says, in getting in, into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now, you may think that that might be referring to Nazareth, since that's the city he grew up in. But That's not his own city during his earthly ministry. Uh, Mark and Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5 have parallels of the same story, and they actually give more details, and they tell us it was Capernaum, And just just since I haven't shown a map in a while of this area, I know it's familiar, but uh, you can see here the Mediterranean Sea uh, there to your left, and you've got the Dead Sea down toward the bottom of the screen. And then the Jordan River, which flows down into the Dead Sea, goes back up to the Sea of Galilee. And uh, just an aerial picture here of the Sea of Galilee, uh, where Jesus carried out much of his ministry. If we zoom in, I think it's about 13 miles north to south, about maybe nine miles across at the widest point. And if you zoom in on the the higher section here, Capernaum is located right there. Uh, it was where Jesus was his home base for his ministry. Uh, this is where Peter lived. This is where Peter was a fisherman. Uh, the synagogue in Capernaum uh, where Jesus actually preached and spoke is still there to this day. At least the old foundation of that original synagogue is still there, which is really remarkable. This is an image of it. Uh, the white building here on the bottom right hand of the screen, that that synagogue was built on top of, it's a newer synagogue built hundreds of years after Jesus. It, it was laid on the same original dark stone foundation of the synagogue that was actually there when Jesus ministered. So Jesus stood in that very synagogue and that... That building there to the left, kind of a big circular building, we don't know this, this can't be proven, but archaeologists think this is Peter's home. Now, there's no real way to know that for sure, but they built a church, (laughs) this is just what would happen, they built a church over the remains of what they think is Peter's home where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Now, while I am not as confident we can pinpoint the exact house that was Peter's, that feels a little uh, further than we can say for sure, here's what we do know. This text takes place in this very spot. I mean, in, in the, where this picture is taken is where Jesus was in this text. And when the the man on the paralytic, now you remember, Mark and Luke give us more details, and uh, we remember that the, they can't find, they can't get into the house where he is. So what do they do? They go up on the roof. We're told that they peel tiles away. You can picture the dirt falling down into the house. People are going, "What is going on?" And these men lower their friend down on his bed, uh, the man who is paralyzed, right in front of Jesus. And Jesus uh, then heals him and also announce, uh, pronounces his sins forgiven. It would have happened somewhere in this, very, in this very location. Let me say a few other things uh, in introduction here, and I, I just want you to know I am borrowing heavily in this introduction from Don Carson. I, I just, I'm borrowing heavily from, his, from, from what he's written on this text here. So Don Carson argues, and I thought this was very inter- interesting, that uh, something ties together the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, with the part we're in, which is Matthew 8 to 10. 5 to 7 leads to 8 to 10, and there's a word and even a concept that ties this whole thing together. Look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 28, and this is what it says, Matthew seven twenty-eight, and when Jesus finished these sayings, finished the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And you will notice that both the word and the theme authority runs through the next few chapters. When the centurion is about to have his servant healed, he mentions the word authority, and on it goes. So, authority is a major theme that ties these sections together. And uh, Carson mentioned this. I'm sure you've known someone who's said this before. It is not unpopular. Now, today, probably less popular. But in the last few centuries, at least in American history, it is not unpopular to find people who say, I think Jesus was a great teacher. I don't think he was the divine son of God. I think he was a great teacher. And I want to live my life by the principles laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll hear sometimes people will say this, I'm not a Christian, I'm not religious, but I do think we should live by the Sermon on the Mount. It's just turn the other cheek and love your enemies. It just seems like the way we should live. And um, Carson said, one time, I think he had a friend who said this and he said, you want to be gracious in how you say things like this. You You don't want to jab people with these kinds of things. But Carson said, have uh, have you read through the Sermon on the Mount recently? I said, "Oh no!" But we we know the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, "Well, would you mind doing a little Bible study? Where we could get together a couple of times and actually work through the Sermon on the Mount." <laughs> now, your friend may actually say, "I don't think I want to do that." But if they do that exercise, they will begin to find that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount uh, is not something that a good teacher would say. It's something that only the divine Son of God could possibly say. So let's talk about this theme of authority that runs through these chapters. Here are some things that Jesus says that indicate His authority. The, sh- the crowd is shocked by His authoritative teaching. Well, what did this authority look like? He did not teach like the scribes. The scribes would often quote other scholars. Rabbis were known to endlessly quote other rabbis. They would build their teaching on the sayings of others. What does Jesus say when He shows up on the scene? Six times in Matthew chapter 5, He says, You have heard that it was said so and so, but I say to you this and that. So Jesus will say over and over, you've heard it said, but I say to you, putting his own words in a position of authority on the same level as God's words. That is an astonishing thing to say. Jesus also says, you know, even the Old Testament prophets say, thus says the Lord. Jesus just say, I say. (laughs) Ezekiel doesn't say as Ezekiel says. He says, the Lord says. Jesus says, I say. What is that saying about Jesus' authority? He's on the same level as the Lord. And so then you have here, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying, not simply that I'm going to obey the Old Testament, I'm going to fulfill it, which is an incredibly arrogant thing to say unless he's telling the truth. Because what he's saying is all of the Old Testament, all of Moses' writings and all the the prophets and historical books, they are all ultimately culminating in an individual and you're looking at them. They are pointing to me. What an astonishing thing to say for a quote, good teacher, uh, like often Jesus is said to be. Jesus also says this in Matthew 5, 11, blessed are those who revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So Jesus says, you know who you should be suffering for? You know who you should be representing in the world? Me. And when you suffer for representing me well, you are blessed and you should rejoice. What status is Jesus giving himself? Can you imagine if you said that to someone about yourself? That's an amazing thing to say. Then Jesus says this. He claims to, determine, he claims to be the final judge on judgment day. Matthew 7, look, look at it here. We read it in Sunday school. Read it again now. Matthew 7, verse 22. On that day, many will say to who? Me. Who is the judge? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are not the words of a good teacher. These are either the words of an egomaniac or the words of the divine son of God, because he is claiming to speak God's words, He's claiming to be the one to whom all the Old Testament points and is fulfilled. He's claiming to be the one who makes the final call on judgment day. This is the divine God in human flesh. That is what Jesus is saying. So whenever someone says, I want to live by the Sermon on the Mount, find a humble, gracious way to say, can we just spend 30 minutes looking at what Jesus says about himself in the Sermon on the Mount? And they may come away realizing that, wow, Jesus said more than I ever realized. He said about himself. They were astonished by his authority when the sermon ended. What authority this man must possess! Now, uh, let me just mention some different ways we use the word authority. Okay. We can speak of the authority of someone's knowledge. Carson mentions this. You could say Professor Smith is the world's leading authority on. He said the duckbill platypus. I love that illustration that he uses there. This person is the, the, the world's leading authority. That doesn't mean he's omniscient per se, but what does it mean? It means that he knows more than anybody about this subject matter. He is the standard by which all other knowledge is judged. You can't talk about the duck-billed platypus without referencing Professor Smith. That's the idea. Leading authority here means uh, authority of knowledge. There's also authority of power, rank, or office. This would be like if you said the President of the United States has the authority to dismiss the Secretary of State. but The President can just do that. That is part of the power that he possesses in his office, or a, as part of his rank. It's a it's, it's an authority of power. Back in the uh, back a few decades ago, what would this be? This would be the we, in the late 1960s, President Nixon. Uh, if you said Nixon has lost much of his authority during the Watergate scandal, it while he was still president, he hadn't lost any of his actual authority. But what did he, what had happened? He had lost his moral authority, his credibility had been shot. Uh, No one trusted him anymore, so his his moral authority was completely drained in that moment. So authority can refer to moral authority. And then there's one more. You could talk about delegated authority. The president has delegated authority to the press secretary to speak to the media on his behalf. And uh, that's a delegated authority, right? It's on loan from someone above you in rank, but it's a delegated authority. Now, you will see that Matthew seems to be presenting Jesus as having all of the first three kinds of authority, and the apostles later get a delegated authority from Jesus there. So, if this makes sense, does does Matthew present Jesus as one with unrivaled knowledge about the things of God? Absolutely. He has the the authority of knowledge. But is Jesus also presenting himself as having the highest power or authority in terms of rank and office? Yeah, he's the judge on final judgment day. That's the highest authority imaginable. It's the authority of God. And also, does Jesus possess unquestioned moral authority? Yes, his holiness is without question. He says to the Pharisees, none of you accuses me of sin. Which one of you can accuse me of sin? Show me where I have violated God's law. You can't do it because Jesus was impeccable. So he possesses all those kinds of authority, authority of knowledge, authority of power, and moral authority. And then in Matthew 10, he will delegate authority, a limited authority, to the apostles when they are empowered to go do miraculous deeds in the name of Jesus. Now, if you look at Matthew 8 and 9 in your Bible, you will see a bunch of short stories with little headings over them in most translations. And 8 and 9 is just full of brief stories. Most of them are healing stories, although not all. Here's what Matthew has done. and just You just need to know this. Uh, it's important to know this. Matthew is not writing these chapters in chronological order, nor is he claiming to. Uh, Mark and Luke will sometimes have different chronological order. Matthew is using thematic order, not chronological order. That does not mean Matthew is lying or misrepresenting the truth. It means Matthew has taken a the theme about Jesus, his power, his authority, and he's showing you a bunch of sample stories of Jesus showing his great power and authority in different ways. And Matthew has strung together a string of pearls here, a bunch of little snippets of how Jesus is exercising his authority in various ways. They're not in chronological order, they're organized according to the theme of his authority. And if you look at chapter eight, Jesus tells leprosy to go away. That is a kind of amazing authority. Ver, ch- chapter 8, verse 9, the, the centurion says that he too is under authority, just like Jesus. He can tell someone to do something, and he does it. He says, Jesus, you've got so much authority, you don't even have to come to my house. You can just say the word, and my servant will be made well. That's the kind of authority you possess. Then Jesus is in a boat during a storm. And what kind of authority does he exercise? Authority over nature. He speaks, and nature obeys. This is the authority of God and God only, who can tell the storm and the wind to cease. Who is this man that even the wind and the sea obeys him? And then uh, Greg covered the, the, the two demoniacs, the men possessed by demons. What do the demons do? They beg Jesus for permission. I love that. And Jesus says one word, go. And they go into the pigs. Who has authority over the demonic and angelic realm this humble Galilean peasant, this man who looks like no one in particular, suddenly he is telling demons and storms what to do. He possesses unrivaled authority. But I will tell you, one of the most precious kinds of authority that Jesus has in the whole Bible is authority over sin and authority over forgiveness. And that's what we see in our text today. So Matthew chapter 9, getting back to our main text, and the outline here is on the screen. I had a number of points, so I thought I would include it on the screen so you wouldn't get lost today in, in, in all this. Uh, I'm, I'm titling the sermon, The Authority of Jesus to Heal and to Forgive. And we are going to walk through five points. These won't be super long points as we go here. The authority. So there's one big sentence that is over all the points. The authority of Jesus to heal and forgive teaches us that, and then we have five things. And we'll work through these as we go. So the authority of Jesus to heal and forgive teaches us that, number one, Jesus is divine. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 again. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Now, again, Matthew is keeping his details brief. Have you noticed, like I mentioned, he doesn't mention the roof being opened? You may wonder, why why doesn't Matthew include the roof being torn open? It's such an interesting detail. Well, if you read Luke 5, Luke spends a lot more time on some of the same stories but Matthew tells more of these stories in a briefer time. So Matthew is boiling it down to the main point. He doesn't get distracted by anything else. He wants all the other details removed. He wants to boil it down to the main idea, and that's what Matthew sticks to. Mark and Luke will fill in some of the details, and you can read, again, Mark 2 and Luke 5 to get more of the specifics. But here is what we see on display. When Jesus announces forgiveness of this man, the Pharisees and scribes are shocked, appalled, and within their own minds, they say he is blaspheming. Now, that may seem like a strange thing to say. He's blaspheming. Jesus is not cursing in God's name. He's not, cur- he's not cursing God. He's not blaspheming in that sense. But there's another way in which you can blaspheme. You know, one way is to use God's name in vain, and that's in that way. Another way to blaspheme is to claim to be able to do in yourself what only God can do. When you claim to be able to do what only God can do, you are blaspheming because you are doing what to yourself? You're elevating yourself too high and you're bringing God down to your level. So either way you look at it, you are, you are dishonoring the Lord. And so they believe Jesus right now is guilty of the most heinous and serious sin in the nation of Israel, blaspheming God, because Jesus is claiming to do what only God can do. Just so you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the cross reference in Mark 2.7, here's what Mark adds to give us more information. Mark says, he, they say he is blaspheming, and then they add this sentence, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the controversy. Only God can forgive sin, and this man from Nazareth, now living in Capernaum, claims that he can forgive the sins of a man who, for all we know, he may never have even met before. And he meets this paralytic, and he just says, your sins are forgiven. What kind of arrogance is this? He is claiming to do what only God can do. Well, there's two things to think about here. Number one, If you wanted, at least in a symbolic fashion and and the way this worked in the Old Covenant, if you wanted to uh, seek forgiveness of God, you went to a place. It was called the temple. And when you went to the temple, you would have a priest. And annually, the Day of Atonement, there was sacrifice made. Put the hands on the head of the goat, transferring symbolically your sin to the goat. The goats are killed, one sent to the desert, one uh, is slaughtered and killed and the blood is applied and taken into the Holy of Holies and applied there uh, on the Ark of the Lord. And then you would have a sense of forgiveness. But let me ask you something. Did the blood of bulls and goats actually remove sin? No. And secondly, what would have to happen next year on the Day of Atonement? They'd have to do the whole process over again because what? The blood of bulls and goats never truly takes away sin. You have to keep offering animals over and over. Jesus is promising to give this man what the temple cannot even give this man, which is absolute forgiveness of sins once and for all. You don't have to come back next year and find Jesus and get forgiven again. You don't have to come back to the cross next year and find a fresh sacrifice of atonement. No, Jesus is saying, I am giving you once and for all of eternity the forgiveness of your sins, period. End of story. You are forgiven once and forever. That is an audacious claim. And you can see why Jesus will say later in Matthew, something greater than the temple is standing right here. That's an amazing claim. I am God in the flesh and I am the place that you will find Acceptance before God. But there's another sense in which Jesus is saying something shocking. King David, the infamous adultery with Bathsheba, has Uriah killed in battle intentionally and deliberately. The baby's born. The baby dies. Remember Nathan, uh, just before this, confronts David and says, you've sinned. David responds, I have sinned. The Lord will put away your sin. You will not die, Nathan says. And then David writes one of the most powerful psalms in the Bible. Psalm 51, right? And listen to the wording of what David says. After adultery and murder, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You ever had that feeling? That there's just some serious sin has happened in your life. You have committed some grievous evil, and it's just staring you in the face. Your sin is ever before you. You go to bed thinking about it. You can't sleep at night because of what you've said or done. You wake up in the morning fearing, feeling guilt and shame over your sin. It's just staring at you. That's what David felt. He says, as long as I refrain from confessing my sin, my bones wasted away. There was no health in me. I felt like I was in agony and shame and defeat. Then he says this, this to, to the Lord. Against you and you, what? Only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, there's two truths being taught here. And this really is incredible to think about. The most offended party every time you sin is God. The most offended party every time I sin is not the person you sin against. And it may be terrible. The way he sinned against Bathsheba is unspeakable. But the most offended party is God, and there's no close second here. Against you and you only have I sinned. And then he says, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in judgment. Here's what he means. Since every sin is committed against God, what is the implication? God is always just to avenge sin. That you might be blameless, justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Why is it okay for God to judge sin? Because sin is most fundamentally against him. And since all sin is against God and God is the the judge, He is the one who is right to judge sin. But there's a corollary amazing truth that goes with that. Not only is all sin against God, and therefore God would be just to judge all sin, since all sin is most fundamentally against God, God is the only being in the universe who can truly and most fundamentally and foundationally do what? Forgive you of your sin. See, imagine this. Imagine someone, and this is an extreme story, someone that you work with, intentionally slanders you publicly. They lie about you in a horrific way. You get fired from your job, totally unjustly, based on the lies of a jealous coworker. Imagine that happens to you. And then imagine I show up, <laughs> and somehow you and this person are in the same place, and I'm introduced to this person who's lied and slandered you. And imagine my opening words to this person are, I heard what you did to my friend, and I want you to know, I forgive you. You would be sitting there going, ah, "Excuse me, uh, you are, you, you still have it. you're still employed. <laughs> I, I'm out of a job here. Uh, I'm the one that was wronged, not you. Uh, who do you think you are forgiving this person? You just met this person. You can't forgive them. Who do you think you are? That's what Jesus is appearing to do in this story. The friends come in, they lower Jesus down to the roof. Jesus sees this man on the, who's paralyzed, and Jesus says, "I forgive you." What the temple cannot ultimately do, what animal sacrifice cannot ultimately do, I'm gonna do for you right here, right now. And you think, this man is blaspheming. He's claiming to do what only God can do, but no, he himself is God in the flesh and Jesus alone can truly forgive sin. Let me just point, obvious point of application. When you are struggling with sin in your life, and if you're honest, there's always a degree of struggle, who do you go to for help? for mercy, for compassion, for strength, for fresh forgiveness, learn. we need to learn increasingly to race to Jesus. A sign of spiritual maturity is not that you never make mistakes or that you never even have sin in your life, ever. That would be wonderful, but we, don't, we have not arrived yet in perfection. A sign of maturity is that when you do mess up and sin in some real way, you own it immediately. You race to Jesus immediately. You don't wait to give time to clean yourself up and make yourself more beautiful to to appear to Jesus morally. No. When you sin, you go, okay, that was wrong. I hate it. I'm going straight to Jesus for fresh forgiveness and grace. Let's learn to race to Jesus. Number two, the authority of Jesus to heal and forgive teaches us that to think low thoughts of Jesus is evil. Look Look again at verses three and four. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Let's not read this too quickly. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? They don't believe Jesus is equal to God. They've made him less than God. And Jesus calls the thought, they're thinking in their own head, right? They're thinking. They're saying this to themselves. He knows what they're thinking. The thought that Jesus is less than God the Father. He is not equal with God the Father. The thought that Jesus is is of a different nature than God the Father Jesus calls it what? Evil. Now I don't wanna be too harsh right now, but we'll pick on ourselves too. I don't wanna just pick on other people's sins, but just a week ago Saturday, so a week and a day ago, I'm with the kids and uh, we're, we're, we're playing with balloons in the living room. Boy, is that a time right there. You don't know who is gonna get hurt next, okay? Balloons are, we got green balloons going everywhere. And there's a knock on the door. I open the door. There's two ladies standing at the door. Turns out a mother and a daughter. I knew almost immediately these are Jehovah's Witnesses. And I opened the glass door. Right when I opened the door, Maggie trips over a balloon, hits the door. The door flies open, hits a clock on the wall. It falls off and crashes on the ground. I thought, this is perfect. So uh, I I opened the door and I, I, picked, I picked this huge clock. Like, the clock still looks like it works. So I put it back behind the door. And uh, we opened the glass door. And uh, pretty quickly, I said, our, they were talking about the kingdom of God. Pretty common... Jehovah's Witness theme, very different view of the kingdom of God than we would believe. And I said, are you all Jehovah's Witnesses? He said, yes, we are. I said, okay, I'm, I'm actually a, a pastor. I'm a Baptist pastor. I said, um, I, tell me if you think this is right. I think one of the biggest differences between what I believe and what, what you believe is that I believe, you believe, I said, uh, or I said, do you believe that Jesus is the first and greatest created being of God? And they said, Yes. I appreciated their direct honesty here, and the girl just shouted, I mean, just blurted out, "We don't believe in the Trinity." I said, "I, I know, I know that," and uh, I said, "I said this is a very big difference between what we believe and what you believe." Now, I'm not trying to be harsh to these two women, but they were going door to door spreading a belief about Jesus that Jesus calls evil. I'm not saying they weren't sincere. I'm sure they are sincere in what they're trying to do, but they're telling people that Jesus is not co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. He is the first and greatest created being of God. He is of a different nature than God. Now, they may look very nice and they were well-mannered and they were very polite to me. They didn't say anything mean to me, but they did say some things about Jesus that Jesus calls evil. When someone speaks of Jesus as being less than God, when they bring him to a lower status and put him in the realm of the creation, Jesus calls that thinking evil in your hearts. Now, before I just point the fingers at other people outside this room, because most of us probably agree with the Trinity, I hope we do. Let's just say in a very practical way, when I, and I do this, I do this, when I complain about my circumstances, truly complain about my circumstances, I am saying something belittling about the sovereignty and the providence of Jesus in my life. So don't think that just the, the, the people of the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons uh, have a problem here. No, who has a problem here? We all, at times, do not esteem Jesus as we ought, we bring Him down in a way that is evil. Uh, but we need to know that having lower thoughts of Jesus is what Jesus calls evil. This is 15 years ago when R.C. Sproul was, was, was with us. R.C. Sproul was asked where he thinks the greatest theological controversies of the next generation will come from. And he said, I think the greatest theological errors will come in the realm of Christology which is the doctrine of Christ. And in other words, he said, a lot of times there's going to be agreement about God the Father, but where do a lot of the false teachings spring from? It's misunderstanding God the Son. And Jesus does not give us wiggle room on this. He says, thoughts that belittle him are evil. Just keep that in mind. I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to say one more thing. I thought about it, okay? I thought about it. Just... Be aware, someone can be sincere, polite, and nice, and what they're saying about the Lord Jesus can be blasphemously evil and wrong. Those things can all be true at the same time. Just keep that in mind. In our culture, we think niceness is the fruit of the Spirit, but you can be nice and you can be very wrong about Jesus. Let's keep that in mind, and let's love others well even when there's major disagreement. Let's speak the truth in love. All right, point number three. The authority of Jesus to heal and forgive teaches us that sin is worse than suffering suffering and sickness. This is one of the more shocking points of this text. Uh, Look at verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's not hard to even make a little bit of a joke here, I think, in my own mind. If I was in the situation of the paralytic man, don't know how long he had been paralyzed. If I was lowered down through the ceiling, Through the tiles. We're desperate to get a healing. Why am I here? I am here to get healed, right? That's, I mean, just imagine what this was like in that culture to to be in that condition. You're lowered down through the roof. You're you're hoping no one lets go, nothing nothing gets messed up here. You're lowered down right in front of Jesus through the roof, causing a huge scene. And Jesus looks at you and he says, Take courage, my son. Take heart, my son. This is very encouraging. And you're going, Here it comes. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I I don't want to read this man's mind. I cannot psychologize this man's mind. But i just tell you, it's very possible that man could have been extremely disappointed at that moment. He said that's not why I'm here. Look at me. Look at the state I'm in. I cannot work for a living. I have to depend on almsgiving. I I, I am here for a very obvious reason. I'm here to be physically healed. You've healed others. Please heal me. No doubt, I mean, I I don't want to read this in, but I, I would assume that could easily be a temptation for this man. And yet, what is Jesus teaching us in this text? This, I mean, this point is far beyond my depth as a a person. This is far beyond where I'm at. I want to grow into this point, but I struggle every day of every week with believing this point. Jesus is teaching us that sin is worse than suffering and sickness. Jesus looks at a paralyzed man. He gives him the best thing he can give him first, and it's not healing. It's forgiveness of sins. I mean, where are we on this one? I mean, I have an idol in my life I am constantly struggling. It is called comfort. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to to be funny here. This is completely real. Uh, I have an idol of comfort. If I don't sleep well, I wake up crabby in the morning, right? Oh, I was up twice last night because of this and that. and I, I wake up in an automatically uh, complaining sort of attitude, uh, and, and I, I need the Lord's help in that. Comfort, I think, is a God in our hearts so often. We want what is easy, what is fast, What makes us feel good? What is not difficult or challenging? And Jesus teaches us, no, the most grievous evil in your life is not discomfort, it is sin. How are we doing in our own prioritization here? Are we valuing comfort and ease over our battle against sin? Now listen, just as a a big application point here, so many of the struggles we have have to deal with where is a good God in the midst of suffering? You know those questions, and I'm not making light of that struggle. I know when people go through really hard things, they ask very difficult questions. I know that. I'm not making light of that. But here's what, here's what wanna, I want to say. The Lord loves us enough to bring difficult circumstances into our life because He is uprooting sin in our heart. Not be, I'm not saying those who suffer the most have the most sin. That's not what I'm saying. Job will tell you that's not the case. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying, every time we suffer is the Lord working to sanctify us. Can God love us even through bringing immense difficulty and pain into our life? Yes. Can God have a purpose for bringing immense difficulty, suffering, pain into our life? Because He is purifying us, what does 1 Peter say? If necessary, for a time you've been grieved by various trials that your tested faith like gold would come forth shining from the fire, purified. So, Jesus teaches us, here's what one pastor said, or one commentator, quote, "'Many Christian leaders today tell us that the church and its message needs to be relevant. We need to meet people where they are. We need to discover people's felt needs, for example, it might be loneliness or feelings of inadequacy, et cetera, and use those needs to bring such people into a saving relationship with Jesus. Such talk makes some sense, and it certainly sounds kind and understanding,' However, it does not reflect Jesus' philosophy of ministry here. His approach is quite different. Let me add one more point here. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, I'll grant you, to this day, this is a debated, what what does Jesus mean is debated? But I I still think the majority view is the right view. So, So follow me here for a moment. Jesus does not say, this is so important, he does not say which is harder to do, to forgive sins or to heal. The answer is forgiving sins is far harder than healing because forgiving sins took the death of the Son of God and that is the more difficult thing to do. But Jesus doesn't say which is more difficult to do. What does he say? Which is more difficult to say? Your sins are forgiven, or get up, take your bed, and go home? And I think the answer is, it's more difficult to say, be healed, than it is to say, your sins are forgiven. Now, why would I say the exact opposite of what it actually is? You follow, you follow this? <laughs> Here's what I think is going on. If I say to someone, your sins are forgiven, can you tell immediately whether that's actually happened? No. Not outwardly looking, you can't tell. But if I say to someone who's paralyzed, get up and walk, are you going to know immediately whether it's actually happening? Yes. So Jesus is saying, listen, I just said your sins are forgiven and you call me a blasphemer. Let me prove that I am not lying. I'm going to do the thing that is in this moment publicly the more difficult one to to, to show. I'm going to heal his sickness. He says, get up and walk. When he gets up to walk, it validates that Jesus had truly forgiven him of his sins and that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Point number four, the authority of Jesus to heal and forgive teaches us that faith Not merit brings mercy. Faith, not merit, brings mercy. Again, I have read it several times. Verse 2, one more time. Maybe two more times. I've got to read it again in a moment. Verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I know this is very basic in our church. I think we've heard this many times but I think I need to say it again. It's in this text, and we can't hear this too often. No one has ever or will ever be saved because they come to the Lord and present to Him a list of meritorious good deeds that they have accomplished. They say, look, Lord, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. As if that were even possible, it still wouldn't save you. Uh, Just imagine that logic. It's like saying to your wife, I've committed adultery on less days than I haven't committed adultery aren't I wonderful? Safe. But you've committed adultery. <laughs> when you say to God, Lord, I've worshipped idols uh, only ha- 49% of the time, but I've worshipped you 51%, the Lord will not say, wonderful job. That's the, he would say, okay, that's, that's a complete failure. <laughs> that is not going to pass muster." Anytime someone says good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, that is never taught in the Bible. It doesn't even make sense when you stop to think about it. Judge, I only lied to you 49% of the time. Four, 51%, I was telling the truth good for you. You go free. I mean, it just doesn't even make sense. So that, 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 don't ever let anyone say that. It just doesn't make it. Just, just ask them questions. If someone says that, ask questions about what that would even mean. No, we don't present meritorious works to God. Faith is a desperate thing. Faith is an empty thing. Faith is not self-sufficiency. Faith is not meritorious. Faith is not a presenting of, of a resume of good deeds. Faith is not a bragging thing. Faith is a desperate, empty, needy thing. The only way anyone in this room is a Christian is because you came to the end of yourself and you said, Lord, I can't, you can't. I can't forgive myself, I can't save myself, I can't atone for my sins, please, Lord, help me. And these friends bring this man and they are desperate, they are needy, they cannot uh, fix the problem. And the Lord sees their faith. All the ones carrying him had faith and the man himself had faith. He sees all their faith and he he grants forgiveness. Last point, uh, number five. The authority of Jesus to heal and forgive teaches us that we should bring others in need to Jesus. They brought the man to Jesus. Well, I'll make this brief. It's pretty obvious in its application. Both for, listen, I want to apply this yes to unbelievers. Yes, if we have unbelieving friends, family members, people we know, yes, we should work to try to bring them to Jesus, get them to encounter Jesus, but also to believing friends. Let me close with a couple of thoughts here. When you are talking to an unbelieving friend, uh, Greg Kokel, great last name, K-O-U-K-L. That's how you spell it, I believe. Uh, he's written a book called Tactics, which I've mentioned before. He's also written a sequel to it that just came out. I just started reading it, so I don't know enough about it to say much about it yet, but it looks great. But his book Tactics is a tremendous book on evangelism. And here is the premise that he uses, which I think is very wise. He argues that we should use questions a lot when we're talking to non-Christians about what they believe. Very intelligent, Uh, wise questions, asking them about what they believe, how they came to that conclusion, how they know that that's true, and these kinds of questions. And and when we are engaged with unbelievers, asking them penetrating questions that will lead them uh, to further reevaluate uh, what they believe. And of course, yes, we give answers too of what the gospel says. But secondly, with believing friends, there are times where you are weary, you are exhausted, you are spiritually worn out, and what do you need? You need someone nearby to encourage you and strengthen your hand in the Lord. Think of David hiding from Saul in the cave. Jonathan, Saul's son, the son of the man trying to kill David, is best friends with David. Right, Jonathan? What a, what a noble man Jonathan was. Let me just, this is a total side point, just Jonathan would have been the next king after his dad, right? But Saul's evil made the Lord give the kingdom to David, Jonathan's best friend. And Jonathan supported David in that. What kind of selflessness are you talking about is in Jonathan? He was going to be king no longer. He's glad David will be king. That's an amazing friend. Unimaginable. And what does Jonathan do? He travels into the wilderness. He finds the cave David is in. And the text says he strengthened David's hand in the Lord. There are times when we are like David. We're hiding out, we're exhausted, we're weary. We don't have any strength left. We need a Jonathan to come by our side. I hope you have many Jonathans in your life who can come to your side and say, I am here to encourage you, brother. I'm here to encourage you, sister, in the Lord. I'm gonna strengthen your hand in the Lord. So when we are weary and we need help, we want to have friends who can carry us to Jesus and we want to carry others, metaphorically speaking, into the arms of the Lord to remind us of the grace and sufficiency that he offers us in the gospel. Let's bow our heads together. Uh, lord jesus we are so grateful that you come down to our level not in terms of our sin but in terms of our humanity you emptied yourself taking on the form of a slave you humbled yourself what other gods humble themselves in mythology and yet you humbled yourself in reality taking on the form of a servant you became obedient Lord Jesus, to your heavenly Father, to the point of death, and it was not a death that was done quietly in your sleep without pain. It was the most cruel death of the day, and perhaps of any day. It was the death of a cross. And the physical pain was not even anything near the true agony of what you experienced, but instead, bearing, bearing shame and scoffing rude in our place condemned, you stood You bore the very wrath and judgment of a righteous and good God against whom we have all sinned and who righteously owes us judgment. And you absorbed the debt of sin and wrath into yourself and drank the cup dry for all who will turn and trust in you. And now you offer free and full forgiveness to anyone who will have it by faith and repentance. And God, for those of us who who have trusted you by grace, I pray that again and again and again, we would return to you as the water of life to quench our thirsty souls and the bread of life to satisfy our spiritual hunger, and that we would know that there is no one else we can go to, for you alone have the words of eternal life. So be with us now, Lord, as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.